All right. Good morning, everyone. All right. Good, good, good. Let me just get set up here a second. Um, let me tell you this first. Uh, preaching on Easter is so difficult because there are so many wonderful things about the resurrection uh, that could be said. It really does actually have implications and fingerprints on everything. And so uh, for a preacher putting together uh, an Easter sermon, it's so difficult because, as you know, preachers uh, go on too long. Uh, and with the resurrection, there's just we could preach for hours on it. Um, but uh, I know that's not what we want, um, and so uh, we want us to get to the heart of it, and so that's what I'm going to try to do uh, today by God's grace. Um, let's open up uh, Scripture first, and we'll start there. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. Uh, we're in the middle of a, uh, this series, and so what we're doing is we're skipping ahead to the portion of the book where uh, Jesus, uh, or rather where Paul, uh, the apostle, is speaking about the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to look at these uh, well-known uh, verses from Scripture and allow that to be our lead-in to consider what uh, uh, the resurrection means and, and, and what it uh, changes uh, in our lives, but also in the story of the world. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. We will read through verse 6. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is God's word. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth about the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Now, we know this because we've been looking at this book a little bit over the last few weeks, but the Corinthians were a very confused church. Paul has to help them and guide them in many matters and areas of life. And now, as confusion uh, arises about, did Jesus really raise? And if Jesus raised, do we raise? Now Paul is going to turn his attention to helping them, to correcting them, to guiding them about this very important article of the faith, this very important reality about human experience and human history, the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul uses this phrase in the text where he says, I delivered to you as of First importance. Can you say first importance? Wonderful. First importance. Uh, I want to do a couple of things for us uh, this morning. Uh, I want us to talk about uh, why, um, why the resurrection is of first importance. You're here, so some of you are here knowing the resurrection is important. Maybe you're a little bit foggy on why it's important because it's been a year since you really heard a sermon about it. Some of you are here uh, because you're just here with friends. You're here with family, or maybe this is a morning you decided, hey, I'm going to go to church and uh, maybe get a little bit of inspiration that's going to help me through this next week. Uh, you were hoping uh, uh, Loyola would pull it out uh, in, that, in that game, and so that was your kind of hope. And once they, they got blown out, the Cinderella story's over, so you said, I need some hope somewhere else. So let me go to church and find it, right? Maybe you're here for a variety of reasons. But I want you to understand, hopefully coming away from this, why the resurrection is of first importance. And then also, not only why it is of first importance, why it matters, but why there's actual reason and validity to believe in it. So of first importance. There are many things that are battling for the title of first importance in your life. 
just think about the thing that as soon as you walk out of these doors, you're going to fixate on. There are many things battling for the title of first importance in your life. If you, take a, uh, if you have a conversation with a few of your friends, you may end up coming away from that conversation with a new contender that is fighting their way to be the thing of first importance in your life. You talk with a few friends and you realize, oh my goodness, my 401k retirement plan, I have not even heard those numbers said in succession. I now need to do this. You have a new title battling for first importance. You scroll through your Facebook feed. There's a cat meme that is now battling for the title of first importance in your life. You talk to a couple other people. Maybe you talk to, to, your, to your parents, or maybe you talk to a family member, or maybe you talk to your in-laws. And the new thing that is now of first importance is the fact that your life plan is five years behind schedule, and you had better get it on track. Everything is fighting for the title of first importance in our lives. And everything that is fighting for the title of first importance in our lives is usually something that cannot actually sustain that place in our lives. It's usually something for which we need to keep striving in order to maintain. But once we sort of maintain it, we realize it doesn't fulfill its promise. And so the striving begins over again. And here the Apostle Paul is going to remind the Corinthians, he's going to remind us, he's going to remind uh, really humanity that there is kind of a central reality that is of first importance. And the thing that is of first importance in human history and in our lives is the good news in this text, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Of first importance, the most important news for your life, for human history is this, that Jesus died and Jesus rose. This is the gospel, the good news that God in his love did not give us what our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion deserved, but that in his unending love, he put that weight, that burden, that debt upon himself in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to make a couple of remarks about the gospel and why it's of, of uh, first importance for us. Here's the first thing about this. Notice what Paul says when he's talking about this news of first importance. Look at this in verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul is doing something unique here. Paul is putting himself in the same place as the Corinthians. He's saying the thing that is of first importance in our lives is the very same thing that I myself received just like you received. He is telling us this very important, simple thing that we can overlook often, that the good news of Jesus Christ is actually something that is not man-made, but is God-given. Paul says, I received it. It was shown to me. I didn't create it. I didn't edit it. I didn't revise it. I didn't Photoshop it. I received this thing. This is good news for us. One of the ways that we know that the gospel is God-given, not man-made, is when something is man-made or human-made, who does it end up exalting? The maker. Now think about this. The central message of Christianity could be boiled down to this. We are losers. Jesus is the winner who then helps us not become losers by giving us eternal life and the power of his Holy Spirit. What human being would come up with such a faith, such a system? 
Who would create such a system that completely undercuts human pride and elevates our utter dependence upon God? And so the gospel is of first importance. It is received. It is God-given, not man-made. Now, here is the other thing that makes the gospel of first importance in the text. Notice what Paul says. Here's what I delivered to you as of first importance, that you become better. No. That you obey Jesus Christ's commands like he done told you to. No. That you become more devoted and disciplined in all the wisdom that God has laid out for you. No. Who is the active agent in this news of first importance? Who is the one doing all the heavy lifting? Who is doing all the moving and shaking? Who is doing all the laboring and sweating? Who is doing all of the work in this news of first importance? Jesus Christ. Jesus is doing it. Look at this. All we do when it comes to the good news of first importance is we just sit back and we receive what he's done. This is critically important for us because this tells us this news of first importance is actually news and not a philosophy of life. What I mean by that is what Paul is telling us here is he is laying out for us historical realities of what Jesus has done. Jesus lived Jesus died. Jesus was buried. This is good news for us to embrace, news to believe in, not a command for us to follow. The gospel is of first importance. It is God-given, not man-made, and it is news of what Jesus has done for us, not an invitation for us to do more stuff for Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel, of first importance. Now, one of the things that Paul says here, this is such a uh, precise and concise summary of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, one of the things that is implied here in order for this to make sense is that this idea of sin has got to compute in our minds and in our hearts in order for us to understand the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as good news. If we don't understand any concept or essence of sin, the good news just sounds like an April Fool's tale. The good news just sounds like a myth. The good news doesn't make sense to us unless we understand the concept of sin, because in the concept and reality of sin, we find the need that makes the good news good. So to paint the backdrop for us, we must remember this, that we are made by God to exist in a relationship with God and to contribute to God's work in God's world. We're made to live with a secure identity anchored in God's love, not in our achievements and not in comparison to others. We're made to love other people sacrificially in the very same way that we love ourselves because that indeed honors God who made them. And yet the problem is that we have no ability to do those things in and of ourselves. That is the problem of sin, that it separates us from God and it separates us from our God-given purpose to be redemptive people living, loving, serving Jesus in this world. Some people say that this problem of a human brokenness, this problem of human sin, whatever phrase we might use, some people would say that we can solve this problem if we would just follow more rules. Other people might say that we could solve this problem if we would just become more educated. 
But the problem is that this is an internal problem, not an external problem. Education can't fix it. Morality can't fix it. Not that those things are bad, but this sin problem Paul is diagnosing is one that lives in us, not just one that is external, that comes out of us. And so we need a remedy that comes into the heart. And this is where Jesus lives, dies, and rises in our place. Now, this question of of sin, when we think about it, some of us are reluctant to admit that. Or some of us sort of admit that, but really we we don't think it's as deep and it needs such an extreme solution as the death of Jesus. But here's my challenge to you. Here's my challenge to anyone. If you find yourself reluctant to admit that you have sin or you are a sinner or you have a need before God, I would encourage you to do this. To one, turn off your inner lawyer. Just send him or her home for the day. Early. And then I would encourage you to sit by yourself for 15 minutes. Also turn your phone off. And just replay the story of your life as honestly as you can. And I think any person that does that will find this, that you will come out of that experience ready to admit that your life story is marked by wounds that have been committed against you, sin and brokenness done by you, insecurity and fear that plagues you, And you will be one step closer to being ready to admit that you, like the Apostle Paul, you, like the Corinthians, are in need of God's grace and mercy. Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher and scientist, said this, that that the modern man, the modern person, their, their problem is that they can't sit with themselves for more than five minutes silent alone because all of their wounds, all of their baggage will bubble up to the surface. And so we have to keep ourselves occupied rather than be confronted with the real us. But Paul shows us that that is actually good news because when we are confronted with the real us, we are primed and ready to receive the good news of first importance of the gospel. Jesus, life, death, and resurrection in our place. Now for the extra, extra good stuff, the resurrection of Jesus. Notice what Paul does in verses 3 and 4. He puts on equal level, on parallel phrase, on parallel plane, this reality of Jesus dying for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Jesus was buried. He rose from the dead in accordance with the Scripture. So he's putting them on equal plane, showing us that both of these realities work in tandem. He's showing us, he's framing them, he's he's painting this beautiful symmetrical portrait for us to understand that the cross works in conjunction with the resurrection and vice versa. And here's what we know, that if Jesus just died for our sins and didn't raise, there is no good in Good Friday, there is no celebration in Easter, and we just have another person crucified at the hands of the Romans. The Romans crucified thousands of people, but only one of them came back to life. And so Paul is showing us that the cross is only the cross if there is a resurrection. Good Friday is only good if there is an Easter Sunday. He is showing us that both of these work in tandem as the gospel, as part of the news that is of in first importance. So why is the resurrection of first importance? Well, let me ask you this. How many of you 
maybe on a date, maybe trying to floss and stunt and impress somebody. How many of you have had your card declined in public? Little show of hands. Balling on a budget. The balling on the budget crew. I love it. Praise God. <laughs> Maybe uh, some of you in, in, uh, in decades past, you had the check, the check bounced, right? That was not as embarrassing because I think you would find out like, like days later, a week later, like you get the letter. That was a lot better. You get embarrassed in the privacy of your own home rather than in front of others, you know, at, at Market Basket. Um, but this experience, it's, it is a humbling experience. When you are trying to make payment for something and it does not go through and you are just left there standing. Like, can I pay with my CVS rewards card? Would that work at the restaurant as well? The resurrection is of first importance because the resurrection is proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. It's proof that the payment of the cross cleared. It's proof that the payment that was given through Jesus' life, through Jesus' death, was approved. Paul will go on to say this later in 1 Corinthians, that if Jesus did not rise, our preaching is in vain and our faith is foolishness. That's how close these things are connected. Here's why we talked about this on Good Friday. When Jesus is dying on the cross, for all extents and purposes, as everyone observes him being crucified, the people who know their scripture the best, the people who know their word, the people who pass the Bible trivia quiz in third grade, those people look and those people point and those people say, he is cursed by God. It's not just that Jesus died. It's the fact that how Jesus died. Jesus died in a cursed death hanging on a tree, clear sign according to the law and word of Moses in Deuteronomy that that is a sign of God's full frown and curse upon anyone who would die such a death. And so the people who know their word look at this and say, Jesus, who claimed to be the son of God, is cursed by his father upon the cross. No way he is savior. No way he is Messiah. No way he is Lord. No way he is anything to which he claimed. So much so that they turn all of his titles into taunts because the cross is clear proof that God has turned his back on Jesus Christ. And it's true. Jesus did die a cursed death. God did turn his face away from his son. Jesus did suffer the curse that we deserved. But the truth of that is that he, he took that curse, not for his sake, but for our sake. And the resurrection is the proof that God says, no, his sacrifice is approved by me. I am turning the curse into praise. I am turning the curse into acceptance. I am showing, I am clearing, I am validating my son Jesus Christ's name so that now the curses that he received, the burden that he paid, will result in praise and salvation to everyone who trusts in his name. The resurrection is proof that the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no hope in the forgiveness of our sins. We have no confidence that God truly grants eternal life through faith or repentance. Think about this. If God doesn't raise Jesus from the dead, what gives us any hope that he would do that for us? 
But on the contrary, we have every confidence because Christ did not stay in the grave, but rose victorious over it. So first importance. The cross or the resurrection is of first importance for this secondary reason. The resurrection is of first importance because it means that God's plan is unfolding even in the darkest of hours. The contrast between Friday and Sunday could not be starker. The contrast between Jesus dying on the cross, the grim news he is dead, to the glorious news of he's back. The disciples, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Your best friend who you have been following for three years, you have left everything behind. You have followed him for three years, been homeless with him for three years, broke bread with him for three years. You've seen, if you are a disciple of Jesus rolling with him, you have seen him outrun death many times. And so you kind of have it in your mind that, man, they're never going to catch Jesus. Jesus is too fly. Jesus is too smooth, right? We look at the Gospels. We have to understand this. Jesus would be teaching. They're trying to kill him, and it, the, it's described in the Gospels, Jesus kind of just slid past, right? Just, just shimmied his way on out and stayed alive. Jesus was smooth. Jesus knew it wasn't time yet. He was able to finagle his way out. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, you maybe have got it into your head that, oh, they're never going to catch my Lord. Never. Or you have it in mind that, well, if they catch my Lord, it's going down. If you're like Peter, right? Peter's always got his sword ready. There's a portion of the gospel where Peter comes to Jesus like, how many swords do we need, Lord? Right? Do you, guys, do you know what I'm talking about? Right? When, when Jesus gets arrested, what does Peter do? Gets his sword out and chops someone's ear off. Now, if your first response to a conflict is chopping somebody's ear off, you've probably done that before, right? This is just Peter. This is the way Peter thinks. There is a conflict, get the sword. You don't like how I parked on Broadway? Get the sword, right? This is just the way Peter thinks, right? And so in the disciples' mind, they know going to, Jesus going to Jerusalem means a conflict. But, and so they're probably expecting that Jesus may die But if he's going to die, he's going to die swinging. And they come and they find out Jesus gets arrested. And for the first time, as he's getting arrested, he does not resist the religious leaders. Every other time before this, Jesus at least has a verbal confrontation with them. But this time when they come, he puts his hands out and says, cuff me. Disciples are thinking, this is different. This is not what we had planned, overthrowing our oppressor. Now Jesus is arrested by our oppressor. And when they see him crucified, they think he is God forsaken. They think no way that everything that we thought and believed, there's no way it could be true. How could he die like this? They're despondent. So they run. So they scatter. So they flee. It's only the women who stay. But then Sunday comes. And he appears. He shows himself. The women see him and the women go back and tell the disciples. And they're like, no way. Let me eat my breakfast in peace. Then they find out he truly is risen. The resurrection is of first importance because it shows us that in our darkest hours, God is always still active and working. 
He was working on the cross. He was working Saturday. And then he was working in a visible way on Sunday morning when Jesus got up out of the grave and showed himself off. So the resurrection shows us, it encourages us that you may be going through certain things right now that it feels like the darkest hour. It feels like, how could anything good come up out of this season of life that I'm in? How could anything positive come out of how I feel right now? I feel this way. I feel down. I feel discouraged. My work is horrible. My kids are crazy. My relationships are ruined. What good could come out of this? Trust that the God who raised Jesus from the dead through faith in his son, he will turn even the hardest experiences of your life into resurrection Sundays where good is produced in and through you. The resurrection is the proof. Romans 8 reminds us of this. So the resurrection is of first importance. It shows us that God's plan on the grand scale of history, but also in our lives, is always unfolding, even in the darkest hours. The resurrection is of first importance also because of this. It means that death, our great enemy, is defeated. I love Jesus because Jesus felt everything that a human being ought to have felt. Do you remember when Jesus' good friend died? Do you remember when Lazarus dies? And what does Jesus do knowing even that he is going to resurrect him in the minutes to come? What does Jesus do? He weeps. Jesus weeps. What does this tell us about the heart of God? This tells us that God himself mourns over the parasite of death upon his creation much more than even we do. This tells us that Jesus, with dedication, with fervor, with resolve, has dedicated himself to undoing the effects of sin and brokenness in this world. That's why he tastes death for us. Jesus can identify with any loss that we have experienced. Jesus has felt the sting of death. He has felt the sting of death, and then he put death to death himself. Death grieves the heart of God so much that he sent his son to conquer over sin and death in our place, that through faith in him, death would never have the last word on any of us. That's the love of Jesus. The resurrection is also of first importance because it means that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything, including us. How many of you have experienced maybe a change in the workplace? A new manager is brought in, new CEO, and everybody in the place gets nervous. They think, what's going to change? Like our, our lunch, are they going to turn our lunch break from 15 minutes down to seven minutes? What's, what's going to happen when, when a new person of authority comes into this place? I used to be able to work from home 360 days a year. Now they're going to make me come in four more days. Like what's going to change when this new person comes into power? This is one of the reasons the resurrection is of first importance, because if Jesus truly resurrected, then everything in our lives is up for reevaluation. Which is both a challenge and a comfort. If Jesus resurrected from the grave, there is nothing from our lives that we can withhold from him. He is the risen Lord over everything.
Paul, who is writing this letter, experienced this firsthand. He, kn- he knows why the gospel is of first importance. He knows why the resurrection is of first importance because Paul was an intellectual and spiritual elite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, trained and groomed from a young age, studying under the greatest Jewish religious leaders all of his life until he hit adulthood and until he was confronted with Jesus Christ's resurrection. And everything changed for Paul. When he was confronted with the reality that Jesus Christ didn't just die, but he got up out of the grave, everything in Paul's life went up for reevaluation, and he became associated with the most foolish faith, the most foolish movement, and he became a person on the very run for his life because the resurrection of Jesus Christ challenges and changes everything about us, which is both a comfort and also a challenge. Here's the comfort. Most of us have habits, have ways of being, have ways of believing, have ways of acting that we would love to shake. And those things spawn from the annoying to the things that actually debilitate and destruct every relationship that we come into contact with. Things that we've probably been dealing with for years. And we have this idea, if you're like me, we have this idea that this year will be the year. This year will be the year that my passive aggressive, sarcastic comments that are so hilarious to little Claude up here, but that cut everybody else down to size, this will be the year that those will cease. Why? What new power or new thing has entered into our sphere that is going to change the things about us that have been plaguing us for as long as we can remember. So it is a comfort when Jesus comes resurrected into our lives and said, says, trust in me, receive my forgiveness, receive my grace, receive my grace that not just forgives, but that can transform you from the inside out. Receive it because the truth is you really don't know how to be the Lord of your life. So this challenge is, yes, a challenge, but it is also a comfort because if we would be honest with ourselves, there are real realities staring us in the face in our lives that prove to us the greater reality that we need a new Lord calling the shots over us. And not just a Lord who has authority, but a Lord who loves us. A Lord who gives his life for us. A Lord who calls us friend. A Lord who weeps when his friends die. A Lord who resurrects so his friends would have eternal life. We need the Lordship of Jesus. And the resurrection declares that Jesus is Lord and then invites us to receive him as such. This is why the resurrection is of first importance. In Jesus, we have a Lord who loves us and who gave himself for us. Now, briefly, I want to tell us why we can believe in this. Let me read to you a section of Scripture. And I just want you to hear this, and I want you to be encouraged by this. Because the resurrection is of first importance. It is how Jesus saves us through his life, death, and resurrection. But Jesus, in his sympathy, love, and care for us, he understands and knows that the resurrection is a difficult thing for the human mind to grasp. And so Jesus encourages us with this narrative where we see with Jesus and Thomas from John's gospel. After Jesus resurrects, Thomas 
has questions. John says this, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, unless I place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Look at the grace of Jesus. God invites us into this good news of first importance, even with our doubts and questions. Thomas is not banished for his questions. He's not banished for his doubts. Look what Thomas says. I will never believe unless I see the proof. Show me the money, and then I will believe. But Jesus doesn't banish him. Jesus comes to him and says, see, come and look. Let me show you. Come along. Jesus doesn't reject his questions, but invites him to explore them. This is what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians. If Christ has not risen from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. Do you know what that is? That is an invitation to bring our questions about the person and work of Jesus, to bring them to him and to examine them so that we might move closer to seeing that the good news is truly good news. Right? Maybe you, maybe you are here in the exact spot of Thomas. You say, this is inspiring. I kind of wish this was true. But listen, man, I did biology in high school, and I know nobody comes back from being dead. So how is this the case? Good. Bring those questions. But here's what you must do. You must examine the resurrection of Jesus for its historical reality because here is, the, here is the thing for you to consider. What would you do if tomorrow news came across your Twitter timeline, your Facebook feed, your whatever, your BuzzFeed, whatever it is for you, news came that all the Republicans, all the Democrats, all the independents, and all the other people we've never heard of have now formed a new coalition where they are united and they are working together. They are believing the same thing. They've set aside their differences. And they are following the same core truth, working together for the empowerment and betterment of the world. What would you do if you saw that? Someone said you would praise God. Yes, that's good too. Wrong, wrong answer, but yes, very good. Good. You are the holy one here, right? We would praise God, but you know what we would say? We would say, hey, I thought April Fool's was yesterday. We would be utterly shocked. And yet this is what happens post-Jesus' resurrection. Jews and Greeks Africans and Asians, people who did not come together at any way, shape, or form other than for the sake of first century debauchery are now coming together under the cause of first century righteousness because of one claimed reality, Jesus rose. Chuck Colson, who you, who you may know, who worked um, with Nixon and was involved with the, uh, with the Watergate scandal, uh, did not believe in, uh, in the gospel, was not a disciple of Jesus, was not a Christian, until the scandal of Watergate. 
When he found out that the 12 or so people, uh, the people involved in the scandal of Watergate, when he saw that they could not keep the lie, and later he went to jail because they could not keep this one lie, he later went to jail for that and in prison begins reading scripture, and he finds out this passage of the gospel, this passage of scripture, where the resurrection story says there were eyewitnesses alive at the time who corroborated the story. When he found out that this was true in among this many people, and he compared it to his experience of the people in Watergate not being able to hold on to a truth to preserve their lives, he realized that there is great historical reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus because he had just experienced 12 or so people involved in this scandal who could not keep a lie to save their life. And then he looks at the New Testament and he sees people dying for what they claim to be true. And he said, there must be something to this. How can we explain the rise of Christianity if the resurrection is not real? We might say it's government-backed. But how does that explain all the martyrs? We might say it's man-made. Why would you make up a lie and then die for it? How do we explain the rise of a movement from a small sect into a global phenomenon if there isn't something behind this that is not just a lie, that is not just endorsed by a government, but there is something real moving and shaping and guiding this global phenomenon. Let's be honest. We can't even coordinate a party among 10 of our friends. We can't even get our friends to show up in the same place on time. How are we going to coordinate something among 500 people to corroborate a story to convince them, hey, this, die for this? So those are questions we have to answer. And Jesus invites our doubts and our questions because he wants us to receive his good news. The resurrection of Jesus is of first importance. Jesus is calling us, inviting us to the celebration of his life and death for us. Some of you, what is of first importance in your life right now is the fact that you are haunted by a struggle. It's the fact that you feel burdened by your past. It's the fact that you feel fearful about your future. But the good news of Jesus' resurrection is that our past is clean, our present is full of hope, and our future is bright because he lived, died, and rose in our place. And this news of first importance is news that is not earned. It is news that is not achieved. It is news that Paul says here as a firsthand recipient. It is news that is received. We grab hold of it by faith and we receive what Jesus has accomplished. He lived, he died, he rose in accordance with the scriptures. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word in prayer. I want to encourage you now uh, in this moment of silent prayer and reflection to ask God and say, God, what do you have for me from this text? What, do you, what are you calling me to from this word? If you're here and you're, you're asking questions like Thomas, you're, you're thinking through things, I want to encourage you and invite you, if you feel comfortable, to, to ask God and say, God, if any of this is true, if any of this is real, would you show this to me? Would you help me understand? Let's take a moment to have a silent prayer and reflection. I'll lead us in prayer aloud.